Don't worry about it. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. It's Frank Pelican. Uh, this is episode two. Sorry, not to, we're not the two hundreds yet. One hundred and seven, um, and we have the most obscure list maybe ever for us, which is the top five movies filmed in our um, grand state of Maryland uh, as we celebrate uh, Maryland Day uh, this month in the state. <clears throat> So this is also the most bizarre list, possibly, that has ever been created. Uh, but it gives us a chance, I think, to talk about movies that, I don't know, you think we probably might not have talked about, Frank? At least for a long time? Chance that a couple of them would have been, ended up on the list. Yeah. There's really only one that I think would have maybe never gotten on a list. But even that one, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I like all five of these movies quite a bit, so yeah were there any that any movies i didn't i haven't asked you this were there any movies that you considered for this list that aren't on here well hmm. uh, i don't know i mean it came to me pretty quickly when i started looking through wikipedia mm-hmm. the movies that were filmed in maryland yeah <clears throat> my first thought was one that didn't make the list which was beloved i had considered putting on there um <clears throat> I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but it was filmed here, um, like in close proximity to where we live. So, yeah, um, I did kind of consider that. Um, That's our two claims, right? Is It's that an absolute power, right? Are the two that were filmed here in the county? I think there's actually a couple other like independent movies mm. that were filmed. Um, there's one fuck it's called like the harvest or something like that it's a b movie from the late 90s Hmm. i think it might have abel ferrar in it or something and it was filmed um parts of it in rising sun Hmm. um i mean there's like i I thought about the barry levinson movies you know like avalon and diner liberty heights like i like all all of those movies thought about putting them on there um i kind of consider blair witch too i guess at a point just because of its notoriety um but i feel like at some point we might do some kind of found footage thing so right and in that case that would probably be blair witch um and then you know like you have all the john waters movies like it's hard to i mean there is a john waters movie on here but didn't want to make it all john waters so that was kind of difficult to figure out like which one to to include Um, and i I appreciate that very much you know how much i like john waters so yeah I I I love John Waters as a person, um, and uh, but those old movies of his make me queasy. <clears throat> There's also stuff like um, movies that I have a lot of like nostalgic effect affection for, but I don't think they're very good. Um, Saint Elmo's Fire, in particular, I thought about putting on there, um, but I don't think Saint Elmo's Fire is a very good movie, so. That did not end up making the list. <clears throat> then there's a Nick Cage movie that could have made the list, but um, we'll save that for a quick Cage at some point. What movie is that? Uh, Guarding Tests is shot. Oh, for- right, right. Wait, I did know that. Never mind. Yeah, because it takes place in Washington, so I'm assuming they shot in like PG County or something like that, maybe. Yeah, anytime you have a movie that's predominantly in Washington, there's a good chance that there's some shit that's been filmed in somewhere in Maryland. Yeah. Um, then, I'm pretty. I'm. I'm. I'm pretty. Pretty happy with the list. Yeah. 
Probably, and I'm thinking, I'm trying to think when I went through the list, probably there's a good deal of naval movies and stuff too um, that were filmed because of Annapolis, right? Like things that take place like. Yeah, I know that the new Top Gun movie was filmed yeah. partially in Maryland. Um, not that it's been released yet, but um, I think there's some stuff, maybe Enemy of the State had some stuff filmed in Maryland. Mm. And I think. I think some of like Syriana was filmed somewhere in Maryland, like some of the DC stuff. Yeah. Same with like, I think a portion of like Charlie Wilson's war was filmed in Maryland, but I'm not hundred percent sure that didn't show up on the list, but I think I remember that. Mm-hmm. Also maybe, Oh no, that was in Delaware. What's that? I think some of, um, that I am legend movie, the Will Smith movie. I think some of that was filmed somewhere in this area. No, okay. Hmm. I might be wrong about that. I have some memory of that though being the case. Yeah, it's a bad movie. Is that your least favorite adaptation of that story? Uh yes. By a pretty wide margin, I okay. would say. Yeah. I think the um Vincent Price version is it's it, it drags a little, like it's just a little too staid. Um, but it's like a super um faithful adaptation of it, and then you know that I love Omega Man here, right? Chagrin. Yeah, it's the actor there, man. I just can't deal with that dude. <clears throat> He's the creature of the wheel. <sighs> uh. All right, you ready to jump in then? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So number five on your list is Behind the Mask: The Rise of Leslie Vernon from 2007. It is directed by Scott Glosserman. It stars Nathaniel ba- Nathan Basil, Angela Gothels, which I don't believe that's the correct pronunciation of that. I think it's Gothels, but um, I think we're just ignorant Americans. Robert England, Scott Wilson, and Zelda Rubenstein. It has a 76% from critics and a 75% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this probably little-known movie outside of horror fans, right? Um, and why you put it on the list. Um, so this is a movie I saw as just a random purchase from Walmart. Um, I probably like nine ninety nine or something for the DVD. I didn't know anything about it, but you know, it was when I was buying like three or four DVDs every time I go out because there really was no streaming or anything. So it was the only way I could watch just movies. Um, and was blown away by it at the time. Um, it starts as like a mockumentary style film where there's a college film crew that's um, following a budding serial killer, Um, but not just a serial killer, like almost like a mythic serial killer, like a guy who's trying to stylize himself in the same vein as Jason and Freddie and Michael Myers and Leatherface. You know, he's he's into the idea of building the mythology and he has all these um, ideas in his head. Like this is like one of the first, big places where they talk about things like the final girl and the um the ahab and you know just like all the the tropes of the horror genre through like the 70s and 80s so this is a guy who's trying to build himself um like creating this mythology around himself and this um pulling off of like local ur- urban legends and this film crew is kind of almost enabling him even though he's telling them directly that he's going to murder people um and they even film him murdering someone and still kind of encourage it. Um, 
they lose their will towards the end of it and it turns into a straight horror movie for the last 20 20 to 30 minutes of the film Mm -hmm. um in which like all of the things that you've learned through the mockumentary portion of it you then like it plays out in real time and it's kind of almost like um like meta commentary on the horror genre because the people that are being stalked and killed they're actively commenting almost like the way the scream did um you know a decade earlier um actively commenting on the circumstances that they're in and what's happening to them and what's about to happen and trying to like break that kind of cycle of the horror movie but still failing at it um super impressive when i first saw it like i thought it was really one of the first movies in a long time like really honestly after scream that was an obvious love letter to the horror genre but at the same time was a commentary on horror as a whole um i like the i found the actors to be charming um the gofuls girl particularly i like quite a bit the girl that plays the um the lead of the the film crew that's mm-hmm. following him around um nathan basil i like a lot as the leslie vernon character um it's got a really great performance by robert england who's basically just channeling um shit i just lost his name from halloween um right. oh yeah yeah, yeah. david uh not david carradine um fuck why can't i can't think of his name the guy that plays uh um <laughs> I been more prepared anyway he channels that that character um from the halloween series pretty well um but yeah it's it's watching it this time i wasn't i mean this is probably like the fifth time i've watched this movie uh watching it last weekend for the podcast um i found it to be a little lacking in certain places like it's a little too goofy sometimes um I think once you know the outcome of the movie, it loses a little bit of its charm. Um, Although at the time, I think I watched this like probably at least two times within the first day that I got it because I liked it so much. Um, And I still like it. I still have a lot of fondness for it. I just don't know that it's as good of a movie as I initially held it and esteemed to be. Um, Mostly because, I don't know, I think like, the horror genre has definitely um, evolved. Yeah, quite quite a bit, and it's become something a little more, a little more respectable. I think in the past ten years, mm-hmm. um, but you have to figure that at the time, um, you know, it was there's kind of a dearth of like really good horror <clears throat> outside of stuff that was coming out of. Um, japan and europe in the early 2000s so seeing something that was um wholly american and wholly original in a lot of ways um you know was was really good so i think that if you have the chance to watch it and i can't remember if this is free anywhere um because i just watched it on dvd um that is worth it's 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 worth taking a look at especially if you enjoy our Donald Pleasance is the name of yeah, the Yeah, Sam Loomis, yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, Sam Loomis came came to me before Donald Pleasance did. <laughs> um, I actually had to still look up if I remember Donald Pleasance, which is weird, but um 
Uh, yeah, I thought this was enjoyable. I had never seen it before. I had no idea what to expect when I was going into it, um, other than I saw that it was considered a horror slash comedy. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was it was an enjoyable movie. Um, pretty predictable, probably. Like you said, like I mean, I. I mean, it's it's meant to be predictable on purpose, I guess, right? Like, right. is is they're telling you exactly what's going to happen, and that's what happens, um, with one minor twist, I guess, in the third act. <clears throat> but you still see that one coming too, I think. Um, but yeah, I don't have a lot to say about it. It was it was my 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 biggest critique of anything is like I feel like it could have been funnier. In the first, like, like I thought it was pretty funny in the first ten minutes, like, not like haha funny, but like you know, like you know, like sly, sly grin, yeah, like funny kind of thing, like you know, oh, that's 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 cute, you know, like that's funny, like, um, and then it just kind of meanders in terms of the comedy for a while, um, and then it turns into a fine kind of like documentary horror in the in the third act i thought um overall that's what most people complain about with the movie though is the third act is like turning it into a horror right um well it does the thing that and you and i have talked about this probably on the podcast but definitely um in real life that um that idea that you either have to like dedicate yourself to being that sort of found footage-esque like horror movie mm -hmm. like wholeheartedly or you have to not do it at all like you can't move back and forth and sometimes i agree with that sentiment and sometimes i think that there still is the possibility for you to kind of like move between those different um the different styles and still be effective but um it is kind of jarring here where it just all of a sudden turns into a you know a traditional horror movie yeah, and I and maybe it's just you know I mean look I I don't think this movie was made on very much money um so like to critique it to me feels a little unfair at times um because I think they did a pretty good job overall like you know with probably the budget that they had and you know like you know the the talent that's involved um I think they did a pretty good job with the overall but I just wonder if like on like a script writing level there's there's not a couple missing scenes where to get to that third act where you have that kind of like oh shit moment where like the i you, you almost know like right in the first two thirds that it's inevitable that it's going to actually turn into a horror movie i think but i don't think you feel a sense of dread of it turning into the horror movie and it feels like there's just a couple missing scenes that would have to give you that oh shit moment where you realize and feel that dread of it's definitely going to turn into a horror movie and these people are in danger. Yeah. Um, agreed. <clears throat> and it's mostly because they don't play Leslie out to be a threat mm -hmm. really until maybe like 45 minutes in when there's the scene after they kind of confront the girl he's stalking in the, in the diner and the Loomis yeah. character kind of makes himself known. Mm -hmm. Um, where you kind of see his like anger and his um menace almost but then it immediately like sort of drops him back into being this like fun loving gregarious right yeah almost like 
drama nerd or art student or something like that who's about the craft and the mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know yeah yeah but anyway definitely worth watching i think yeah if you're a fan of horror absolutely all right so number four on your list is 1990s god this just radically shifts um 1997's washington square uh, it is directed by ajnishka holland stars jennifer jason lee albert finney ben chaplin maggie smith judith ivy has an 81 percent from critics and a 69 percent from audiences you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, what you like about it so much um so uh based on the novel by henry james um it's really kind of a slow-paced comedy of manners following a um unfortunately like ungainly and um almost like chronically shy young girl uh played by jennifer jason lee um who's being raised by her uh widower father um and never really has any and her i i guess i don't know what you would call her like eccentric aunt perhaps is a good adjective for Mm -hmm. um who's sort of raised kind of like outside society, even though she comes from uh, tremendous wealth. Uh, She's not really ever graceful enough to be introduced into society. So she's kind of on track to just be a spinster. Um, She ends up gaining the attention of, um, I don't know, like a young Lothario almost, although he's not really a Lothario. He's just kind of an opportunist. Um, who happens to be really charming, um, who woos her and convinces her that they're in love. And um, this is against her father's wishes because her father sees this guy to be like really what he ends up being, which is a gold digger, more or less. Um, she's going to marry him against her father's wishes, um, at, even after finding out that her father will like disinherit her if she does so. Um, but he reveals his true colors when he shows that he only wanted to marry her for the tremendous fortune, even though she would still have, it's like $10,000 a year, which I, I can't remember how much that was when I looked it up, but it was a pretty considerable amount of money in like whenever this takes place, like early 1900s. Um, so she ends up becoming the old maid that I guess she was always destined to become. Um, ends up never marrying despite the fact of having like people like suitors come around um, and turns uh, her home after her father's death into a daycare where she um, seems to get a lot of satisfaction and pleasure out of raising the children of other people um, and is always kind of like pined for um, Morris the the young man but would refuses to like even entertain the notion of seeing him um, later in life and then has never married anybody so kind of a a very small tragedy i guess i don't know like i mean there's some elements of comedy to it but for the most part it's 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 a pretty tragic story um she's definitely underestimated by everyone around her just because she's so shy and like unable to like really verbalize her emotions very well but the performance is spectacular by Jennifer Jason Lee. I mean, she really yes. is crazy good in this role where a lot of times she's doing things through like nonverbal cues mm-hmm. and like self 
self-editing or words and mumbling on purpose and um, it's just a really great performance and Albert Finney is pretty fantastic in it too it's just this colossal condescending asshole who refuses to acknowledge that his daughter has any worth um, mostly because the birth of his daughter led to the death of his wife which is like the biggest tragedy of his life and it's something that he's never really forgiven the girl for so even though like the one thing that she's always wanted was the affection of the father he's never given it and then when she finds the affection of this man her father kind of like kills that affection um just because he thinks the only thing that matters is the money um some really great scenes with her discussing the fact that like even if all he wants is my money if he makes me happy isn't that enough and Mm -hmm. um i don't know it's definitely a period piece and i think that you have to really enjoy period pieces to enjoy this movie um but it's beautifully filmed um has some really great performances and is a pretty um i actually don't remember washington square as a novel although i read it when this movie came out the henry james book but Mm -hmm. i really don't remember much about it I don't. Yeah. I, I think there's some some pretty big differences here, or at least some differences between the book and the the way that it's adapted. But I, I couldn't remember. I was trying to remember when I was watching. I didn't want to look it up. It's 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 it's, it's pretty close. I mean, like it, there's there's definitely um, there's definitely differences. But I mean, like I think the the core is. Is, is pretty close. Washington Square isn't... I mean, I would consider one of his lesser novels, um, probably, and I think Holland, who we've talked about previous on the podcast for Europa Europa, right? Um, yep. And um, I think she brings a... Look, I mean, like... <laughs> Henry James isn't everyone's cup of tea, right? I mean, and um, not even from a writing standpoint, trying to read his his prose, but um, just from a story standpoint nowadays, um, uh, except for a couple of his, like, Turn the Screw and stuff like that, maybe, like, that keeps getting adapted in different ways throughout the, um, you know, decades. But, um, but these, like, uh, drawing room kind of, like, novels that he wrote isn't always everyone's cup of tea, but uh, I think she really takes something that, for I would think, for most people, would be pretty boring. I think it really injects a lot of life into it through the direction um, of the movie. The cinematography is amazing, especially in the outdoor sequences. Uh, the The way that that's filmed, that scene with um, Jennifer Jason Lee and Chaplin when they're at the fountain, and she has the kind of emotional breakdown uh, because he's being so cold suddenly. The way that whole thing is filmed is uh, astounding. Um, and you're right about Jennifer Jason Lee. Like in this, there's times I really wonder if like there probably wasn't some more dialogue, and she nails things with looks that they just went with the look as opposed to actually like having like lines that they may have just cut um because she's emoting so strongly um but uh i also want to give credit though finney's usually great uh maggie smith and judith ivy playing the ants yeah are also uh, maggie smith especially like in this role um of being this kind of 
lonely. It's like there's so many things going on in that character of being lonely and trying to live out her life through the young girl, but you know, being conniving at the same time. And it's like that's a that's a that's a difficult role to play. Um, and I mean, I, I, she's a great actress, so I shouldn't be surprised. But it's it's really well done. Um, also, yeah. I, the, the main criticism of this movie is that it's boring from audiences, Why this is why the audience score is lower, but I think that um, this is just not everyone's cup of tea, but I think that like from the novel adaptation, I think she elevates this, I'll be honest, um, from, from, the, from the novel. Um, as great as I think Henry James is, as a writer too, I mean, but I, I think she elevates this and makes it uh, palatable and um, something definitely worth watching if you're into that time period and stuff yeah yeah maggie smith really um uh just uh i don't know like she does kind of steal a lot of the scenes that she's in um and you you it's weird because you kind of you you sympathize with her and you like her a lot of the times but she also just completely oversteps her bounds like so many times that she almost becomes like the de facto I don't want to say like villain in the movie but mm-hmm. definitely is working against um uh what's her name I can't remember the female character's name um Catherine's uh best interest yes yeah um, for her own self is best interest of just trying to because she wants to be a mother and that's what she sees um mm-hmm. yeah that's what she sees uh morris as being as like a surrogate son yeah there's even that scene where when Catherine comes home from the trip to europe where she's kind of resolved at this point to um to marry him mm-hmm. and she's sort of her aunt's kind of ruined it in a lot of ways um well, she hasn't really ruined it, but Catherine sees it as ruining it by talking about her the whole time, which is also another like really depressing thing that she's yeah her estimation of herself is if you talk about her enough, it'll make someone sick of her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and no one will want to be with her. Yeah, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of like really just amazing scenes, and I mean, uh, largely like the way this is adapted is adapted as a stage play, I think, with you know, where I think they change the scenery at times, like to be able to film outdoors, you know, a bit more and those kind of things. But I mean, it really is kind of like a, a stage play and like some of the sequences of the acting in this um, and the dialogue and like the motivations of characters and stuff like that are just really intriguing, really engaging. And um, I'll be honest, like, it was like, okay, Henry, like, and I like Henry James, but I was like thinking like, okay, let me watch this, like, you know, Henry James adaptation and not, I like I said, I always thought Washington Square was one of his lesser works, which is not how the critical reception is. People love Washington Square um, because he writes in less convoluted language than he normally does in Washington Square. Um, James himself disliked the novel, but um, critics have always loved it. But I was sitting here thinking, okay, it's one of his lesser work. Let's see. And I was just pulled into this movie um, of seeing how this was going to play out. And I think it's a really great. early feminist work like much like we've talked about recently i'm sorry i'm the name's escaping me the australian movie that we talked about 
in the past. Oh, my brilliant career. My brilliant career. Like things like that of like, you know, like these women in like the late 1800s finding the ability to stand on their own two feet and gain independence from like, you know, this uh, completely restricted culture, um, you know, and, and find some sense of contentment um, uh, through bravery is, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good, it's another good example of that as well. But yeah, in terms of uh, criticism, mostly I just want it. Mostly, it's like the um, it was like the whole boring, like slow paced, you know, like those complaints, which is just usually I chalk up to people they they just don't like this kind of stuff. Like <clears throat> there wasn't any like major complaints where I was like, oh okay, like yeah, I see that. It's like it's always the same thing. <clears throat> Yeah. I don't know how anybody can sit through this for two hours, blah, blah, like, lack of depth. All right, so number three on your list is, going back a little bit in time, 1990, it is John Waters' Crybaby, stars Johnny Depp, Amy Locane, Susan Tyrell, Polly Bergen, Iggy Pop, and Ricky Lake, has a 73% from critics and a 77% from audiences. You want to tell us about this movie and why it's on the list? And why it's the representation from Waters that you chose? <clears throat> um, hmm. I don't know. It was a hard choice. It was between this serial mom and polyester, and I chose this because I think this is the more <clears throat> the more fun, I guess, of those three movies. Plus, it's the one that um kind of reminds me the most of like Baltimore. I think. Gotcha. Um, but that's not true. C- Serial Mom is very much like the Baltimore I grew up in, um, in very many ways. But this is um, there's one part of this movie that is super like relevant to my childhood. But we'll get to that point here. What about did Hairspray? Oh yeah, I forgot. I, I I like Hairspray too. Yeah. Okay. I like every John Waters movies. I didn't want right. to force you to have to sit through any of like the early catalog because I know how um how much you dislike like that grimy DIY aesthetic of waters, like first, like five Mm -hmm. or six movies. Right. Um, I also think this one has maybe the most like enjoyable plot. And it was the one that had been probably the longest since I'd seen. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to watch it again. So, (laughs) yeah, I appreciate it. This is my favorite waters period is that period from like 88 to like, you know, 92 or whatever. Um, like that's the waters that I love, like much more than the earlier stuff. Even like I've said before, I respect the earlier stuff. It's just, you almost had to watch, you almost had to watch female trouble, multiple maniacs, maybe. Hmm. I don't know that I'd ever force you to watch pink flamingos again. I'd have to be really pissed off at you to to make to put that on the list. <laughs> um, It'll happen. I love Pink Flamingos, but yeah. just saying. Um, so the movie follows sort of the cultural clashes between um, the squares, who are clean cut, you know, typical like what you would consider like the Leave It to Beaver nineteen fifties kids. Um, versus the drapes who are these um, outlaw greasers um, led by Johnny Depp's crybaby Um, they're all social misfits and outcasts um, 
Depp falls in love with um oh fuck, I forgot her name already. Uh Depp falls in love with um Allison, who's this like perfect blonde hair, blue eyed drape or um square, uh who's dating um fuck, what is his name? Dating like the leader of the squares like singing group. Um the Wiffles, I guess is the name of their their band. Yes. Uh she falls for Crybaby. Um he falls for her. They sort of have this like Romeo and Juliet type relationship, much to the consternation of all the other squares. Um, although the drapes are much more accepting of the fact that like he's in love with her. Um causes a brawl at this turkey point swim club um where crybaby gets arrested and sent to uh, juvenile hall until he turns 21 um he ends up trying to escape but is caught in his escape attempt um the judge that threw him in um in jail is wooed by the grandmother of allison who's sort of come around to the idea of her like finding happiness and being in love um so johnny depp is released um and ends up you know being with allison in the end and there are a lot of singing involved um it's a kind of like a um an elvis presley style like i mean obviously there's a lot of nods to things like um uh heartbreak hotel and fuck what's jailhouse rock i guess more than anything just in the way that the people in jail are dressed and the dancing and stuff um has a huge amount of cameos from um counterculture and like outsider celebrities from the um, 70s um iggy pop which you already mentioned um troy donahue joe delisandro joey heatherton uh patty hearst um willem dafoe as a sort of almost like a Correct. co yeah. sneak, sneak role is like this okay. i don't even know what you call him like mean corrections officer well just real quick with william defoe is he doesn't have like what like 30 seconds maybe a minute of screen time or something like it's that about a minute but that that damn sequence where he like is like making the prisoners like call out and like say their prayers and is a god bless dwight dwight eisenhower god bless roy Cohn, god bless richard nixon um it's so funny that he includes roy Cohn in that and uh, for those that don't know roy Cohn was um an attorney who was a big part of the mccarthy um uh hearings and stuff like that and um advised mccarthy and was this kind of like anti-communist that destroyed a lot of people's lives but um, the funny thing is how that connects to today is that Roy Cohn was the um, person who um, mentored uh, Donald Trump in the 1980s. Um, so, like, despite the fact that it's like these are old figures in sense of Cohn, Eisenhower and, uh, you know, Nixon, it's like it, it, it was funny to me, like just sitting there and like hearing that name come out. It's like, oh, Jesus, like uh, and I'll talk about this just a little bit more later, but it's like, it stretches into the day. Like it's still, it's still present, <laughs> like the whole mentality, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your list, but I forgot what I was talking about. All the people that were counterculture. Figures. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just um, some people that 
you would have like i don't know that showed up in like b movies and like we're part of like warhol's group um and i guess we're probably friends with waters at that time hmm. plus uh ricky lake and tracy lords who were both um kind of recurring cast members for waters um who both had their own unique notoriety at the time now could you um, just go a little bit because i'm not familiar with most of those people like you're much more familiar with a lot of those people that you name there than i am like in terms of the counterculture figures i, I of course i know iggy pop you know and um uh what's her name kidnap uh woman but um some of those other ones you mentioned like i i'm not familiar with them like so do you want to contextualize that a little bit of how they tie into the counterculture uh so troy donahue was um kind of this american sex symbol in the 50s okay. um who sort of represented everything that um uh, a baldwin character is um like a almost like a mockery of where he's like clean cut but like too clean gotcha. cut and he still has like bad intentions but he hides them behind like the kind of that eddie haskell hmm. vibe but um troy donahue was like like the clean cut american you know like okay. sex symbol for women in the 50s gotcha um joe d'alessandro is a big part of the warhol um collective um he was a also a gay sex symbol mm. in the 70s um and had been in i think he's in franken warhol's frankenstein and warhol's dracula if i'm not mistaken um joey heatherton was another one that was like just a big sex symbol in like the 50s and 60s um probably more like the 60s and 70s um patty hearst obviously is you know the right, heiress right, to the right, hearst right. fortune sure um somebody that had become friends with uh um waters i think somehow um and then the guy that plays her husband so she plays the mother of tracy lord's character um and they're kind of these oblivious um just middle american like really nice but really oblivious middle american squares kind of that have raised this um draped daughter and don't really like see anything wrong with like her making her own life choices um she's probably got the funniest line in the movie where they bleep the word fuck twice right and she's like oh what is that and the father um says oh well honey that's just one of those um you know funny teen slang words and she's like well your honor can we just get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah um quarter seems that guy great. is that guy is david nelson who also was a popular actor okay. in the 50s and hmm. 60s um and then there's other people like mink stole um is the woman that's in the uh the iron lung <laughs> yeah um and she was a really um prevalent uh waters um cast member throughout like mm. the 70s and into the 80s i think probably in almost every one of his movies i think she's been in mm. so just a lot of these characters who and then iggy pop who was a huge you know like counterculture sex symbol and uh, like pop culture icon throughout the 70s and 80s um so pulling like all these you know people that had like had kind of like at one point in their careers like loomed large in terms of like pop culture relevance but it sort of fallen to the wayside a little bit i mean i don't know who was thinking about troy donahue and um right you know 19 1990 um but i think it's just cool to like see that yeah and i feel like it's 
really indicative of water's own love for just like the trashy kitsch of american pop culture and how much he loves just kind of both celebrating it and poking fun at it at mm-hmm. the same time i mean nia cash tracy lords in this and what else is she in serial mom maybe um and this is after her um scandal where she was um in pornographic movies when she was 17 um and they all had to be, like collected and destroyed it was this like huge story I mean, then she gained some level of notoriety and actually became a pop star too, like a singer after this. Um, yeah, but she I really, was, she wasn't serial mom, yeah. I really love her performance in um in this movie. Her and Ricky Lake both, I think, are really good in it. Yeah, and yeah. uh, um, what's her name? Uh, Kim McGuire is Hatchet Face. Yes, yeah. Another mm. one, that really like bright spots in terms of like comedy in the movie. But yeah, it it just it's it's a really it's a really cool send up of the fifties. Um, I mean, fifties society in the terms of and Waters has always done that, where he takes the idea of like the veneer of like the perfectness of the Greatest Generation and kind of breaks it apart and shows that there's this like underbelly to it. Um, one of the things that he does in this movie too that one of the reasons why I fell in love with it when I saw it in like 1990 is he sets part of it at Enchanted Forest. So like the latter half of the film takes place during the opening of Enchanted Forest in the fifties for no one, for anyone that's never been there, which is probably like the majority of our listeners, I would suspect um, Enchanted Forest was this amusement park that was right outside of Baltimore where everything was a recreation of a fairy tale. So, like, you would go into, like, the Three Little Pigs house, or you would go into um, the little old lady who lives in the shoe's shoe, or um, it was, like, a Goldilocks um, and the Three Little Bears place, yep. and Rumpelstiltskin's, like, loom with, like, the gold. And, man, that play, it was amazing. Like, it was just, you just walk around, and there was, like, a couple of, like, rides you could get on, but nothing, like, spectacular, but it was... um. It was super impressive to me when I was a little kid. Like, I loved that place so much. And it was probably well into its disrepair by that point. But I remember it being this amazing. Yeah. Amazing amusement park. It's funny. I, until you said the the shoe, I, I remember it now. Like. It's on. It's either in an episode of Homicide or an episode of The Wire. It. it yes it's it's episode of homicide um, where they go to enchanted force yes um yeah for some reason i want to say it's a scene that has melissa leo in it like the, the k howard character maybe i think i think that's right um i think it's her and uh, baldwin maybe but um <clears throat> but yeah i actually forgot about it like just about the shoe like um i remember going there a couple times now as a kid as soon as you mentioned the shoe um i'm looking at pictures now and there's i also remember um willie the whale um as i'm looking at pictures um but it was just the thing where you'd like walk around and you could go into these places and yeah yeah they were dimly lit and kind of smelled mildewy and stuff but it was just i don't know it was really cool like i loved enchanted forest so him setting you know this climactic almost like kind of like proto rap battle between um the drapes and the squares like yeah. that enchanted forest is uh yeah. is pretty cool uh 
Yeah, you're correct. Episode 43. Um, titled The Hat. Oh, right. That's the Lily Tomlin episode. The Hat. Right. Yep. Um, yeah, this. I thought this was the most fun movie that was on your list here. Um, not the best movie, but the most fun. Like, I, I haven't seen this since. I really enjoyed this as a kid. Um, probably because as a child, like, you know, as like a, you know, 11, 12, when I saw this, like, I could still, like, get the fun out of it even if i didn't get and still apparently don't get it at the age of 40 um like all of like the little in jokes about the past and stuff like that but um watching it this time for the first time in you know 30 almost 30 years uh i still really enjoyed it i thought it was the most enjoyable movie on the list uh because again it's that water sense of humor where he's not taking himself very seriously um or at least like you know like not taking like uh the content like you know i think like super seriously there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff there's a lot of poking fun at, like you said the previous generation um i watching it this time i took away from it that that just so happened to be the way the 50s looked at a younger more progressive culture and that you could just replace this out you know, every decade or two. Sure. And it, it's still the same story, you know, like of the older generation being scared of like, you know, the way this new generation acts and it would still work. You know, you could just, you know, whatever. It's like, you could take, you know, uh, the, that, that same story in the eighties, early nineties and flip it out with like, you know, kids getting into, metal or hip-hop or something like that you know and it's still the same damn story like over and over again of the fear of the previous generation um which is i guess why like i latched on to that roy Cohn reference um which i just think is a bizarre reference but um but it's why i latched on to that and like saw that connection so clearly to the present day is because it kind of like tied into that like what i was taking away from it is that this is always the same damn story it just repeats itself over and over again so for that reason i also think that um it's still really current despite the you know milieu of you know 50s culture and stuff like that well and i think that's part of like water's thing is that being someone that was an outsider for a lot of his life anyway yeah. You know, and was raised in an era where, you know, his sexual preference wasn't something that was accepted or, you know, in some ways could have probably gotten him hurt um, and kind of like grown up with that, like to both sort of reject the idea that it was perfect, but also embrace the, you know, the, the kish and the, the gaudiness of the time period. And just like the scenes of him driving down like Baltimore streets where every single house is the same exact house. and like i grew up in a neighborhood that was very similar to that um mm -hmm. when i was a kid in suburban baltimore um so it just i don't know whenever i watch a waters movie especially one that's set in the 70s or 80s there's a lot of um well i know this is set in the 50s but filmed in the, the 80s um there's a lot of nostalgia that goes there and it just well it always have a special place in my heart in the dude's movies <clears throat> yeah i'm looking at pictures of enchanted forest now too man the place was yeah uh-huh um, our 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 good friend Dave Kerr did not like um this right, movie. Maybe? 
Yeah. Um, he liked Hairspray, but he, he did not like this movie. Um, he says that, he says Crybaby works because it's has like some sort of like basis and actual experience. Um, but this one doesn't really have a subject and what does he say? Only a uh, rickety framework erected to support a few broad gags and a few indifferently filmed production numbers. Um, he says Water's only visual signature may be his uncanny ability to make his actors look bad. He's drawn in instinctively to just the lighting scene that brings out the wrinkles and the double chins, just the camera angle that accentuates the midriff bulge. When Waters is dealing with performers like Divine or here Kim McGuire, a woman whose mastery of trick makeup job more than justifies uh, the name of Hatchet Face, who themselves clearly relish the outrageous joke of their physical appearance, the results can be highly entertaining, but it's hard to see the point when water shoots the diminutive depth to look even tinier or finds the angle that adds a few extra pounds to an already strapping locane, um, which that's real fucking judgmental. Um, <clears throat> but uh, how does he not get it when it's supposed to be funny for those characters, but I, I sometimes I, I I don't get some of these criticisms like at all. I mean, I guess it's no different than you and I having disagreements sometimes, where it's like we can't fully understand the other person. But it's like I don't know, I don't understand. I can never understand like some of these things, like that distinction between like. Sometimes I think it's a work. Yeah. Yeah. You think it's just like a. Well, it's interesting. Like, yeah, like, I guess, like, you know, when I'm grading, like, and I, I, there's times where I've seen that where it's like, I know what this grade is. Um, and then it's like, I'm justifying the, like, the grade sometimes. Um, and like, I know this is like a D paper and I got to justify the grade. And then it's like, sometimes, like, it's, it might seem like you're stretching. Um, so, yeah, I maybe I can see that as like you know, yeah, there's a there's an element of work to it. Um, like he's got to justify his whatever grade he gives it, like a you know a four out of ten or a five out of ten or something like that. So he has to like find this shit to talk about that, um, make it seem worse than what it is, or come up with these little stupid little things like that. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. All right. Number number two on your list is 1987's Tin Men, directed by Barry Levinson. Stars Richard Dreyfuss, Danny DeVito, Barbara Hershey, and John Mahoney. Has a 77% from critics and a 64% from audiences. You want to tell us a little about this movie and what you like about it? <clears throat> so, uh, again, set in the 1950s, um, following, or I guess early 1960s, um, following the not really parallel lives of two uh, quote-unquote tin men uh, colloquialism for aluminum siding salesman in 1960s Baltimore uh, Tilly played by Danny DeVito and BB um, played by Richard Dreyfus. Uh, BB is a slick smooth-talking handsome successful uh, salesman whereas Tilly is this I mean he's Danny DeVito 
um short obnoxious weird looking kind of schlub of a salesman who never really makes any sales um they work for rival agencies they both use disreputable tactics to con people into buying aluminum siding um they run afoul of each other on the day when bb buys a new cadillac and backs into tilly's cadillac um that leads to an escalating series of kind of passive aggressive attacks on the other including like destroying each other's cars and whatnot um culminating in bb sleeping with tilly's wife um but then falling in love with her um so it really starts as like a super mean-spirited movie and then kind of evolves into this weird like love story where bb's kind of finding himself like outside of his persona that he's maintained for years is this like man about town lothario who sleeps with all kinds of different women and is just like able to get whatever he wants and he finds himself sort of liking the idea of being in a relationship and being in love um all of this is set against the backdrop of the institution of the baltimore i think it's the fair housing committee or something like that um which was investigating Mm -hmm. salesmen for disreputable and dishonest and fraudulent tactics in terms of getting people to buy um products but in this case aluminum siding um culminates in both tilly and bb having their licenses revoked although bb willingly gives his up because he wants to move into something else to start this new life um with this newfound love he has for uh tilly's wife um and tilly's kind of despondent because what else is he going to do and movie ends with these two rivals driving away together sort of coming up with different ideas for what their next business venture is going to be um really just a i don't know i'm surprised it's got such low ratings because i i really love this movie um i'm a big fan of the performances of all three principals in a uh, hershey devito and dreyfus um i think they all do a great job um i think this might be my favorite richard dreyfus performance um because i think it perfectly captures the assholishness that's at the core of richard dreyfus but then humanizes it in a way that makes it like more palatable and not just a parody uh-huh. um, which I think is what Richard Dreyfus ends up being in most of his movies, just kind of a parody of a human being. Um, he feels like pretty well-rounded here. Yeah. Um, gives a lot of depth to DeVito where it's not, he's not just, again, he's not a joke himself. Like he has like some depth to his character and, um, and I like Barbara Hershey in her role too, is the wife. Um, oh, pardon me. But yeah, just, it's, it's really well-written. It's my favorite of Levinson's um four big baltimore movies um i love the kind of weird like grittiness of it um where there's a lot of like you're actually seeing like the city of baltimore as opposed to like mm-hmm. a lot of times what people show is stuff like the harbor and like the suburbs of baltimore right but here like they're in the city most of the time so there's kind of a that beginning of like the dirtiness that's kind of like overcome Baltimore at this point, but just, you know, really well-written, really snappy dialogue, great performances, fast paced. Like it goes by super quick and just, I don't know, just a really fun movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I really enjoyed watching it again. I probably haven't seen this movie since like the late eighties, early nineties. Again, I enjoyed it as a kid. I didn't know how I feel about it now, but I always, 
like when I would see it, I was like, oh yeah, Tin Men. Like you know, I remember me and my mom like watching it. Um, because she was a bit really big Danny DeVito fan. Um, my mom, so we would always watch it if it was on like HBO or something like that. So I probably saw it like two, two and a half times or something when I was younger, maybe three, like fully. I don't know, but um, I agree with you about Dreyfus. Like watching it again, I would say it's between this and Groundhog Day for like my favorite Dreyfus performances, and both of them are pricks. Um, and I think I think it was John Lithgow that said that uh you know, no matter what character you play, like, you have to, like, uh, shake their hand. Um, whether it's, you know, whatever, like, a villainous character, or, like, an awful, terrible person, like, you know, um, it doesn't feel like Richard Dreyfus had to shake anybody's hand here, like, you know, it felt like, um, felt like he, he's known that character for a long time, and just what I know a little bit about Richard Dreyfus behind the scenes and stuff like that, um, I think I'm probably correct, like, you know, like, and, and you're probably correct in, like, you know, feeling like he's not really, like, doing, like, a whole hell of a lot of acting here, like, there's some degree he is this character, and, but, um, despite all that, it's like, yeah, I do think he, like, felt, and maybe that's what it is, is, like, because he was so, is in some way so close to this character, it does feel more fleshed out, it feels more real, um, it feels, um, uh, like it's a, you know, fully realized character in some ways and uh i actually thought he felt more fully realized than devito's character ever did um in the movie uh overall like and yeah i mean i was really drawn into dreyfus's performance i was drawn into his journey uh, more than anything else in the in the movie and uh yeah i i really enjoyed it in the end i, I thought it was quiet funny like you know it's like you know the it's mean it's like it's it's, it's a mean there's a movie. lot of real mean mean shit in it yeah yeah it's like these are mean people like you know um mean guys and um but it's like you know i, I thought the choir moments were funny i thought like some of the side characters were funny too like the, the guys that work with dreyfus and stuff oh like yeah, that. yeah yeah well the guys that work with um devito are especially yes yeah them too because yeah. they're just all schlubs with devito it's like right <laughs> like you can tell that dreyfus's firm is definitely the one that is the more successful and more like professionally run and DeVito is just right with these, these other losers really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah there's some really funny scenes like the, them accusing DeVito of like being crazy basically because he was giving away the siding. Yes. Right. That's his, his one score right. that like helps him. Yeah. Helps him get his sale. And then the people don't even have the money to pay for it anyway. So, mm. Um, yeah, it's it's funny you said what about Bob? Because I mean, he's, I agree, but I think that in this movie, there's a redemption arc for Dreyfus where usually his character is just a dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dick abandoning his family so he can go into outer space. You know, what I mean, whatever. Yeah, always, always. You'll never stop, will you? Like, um, with the close encounter shit. Um. <clears throat> But yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed this movie, and and maybe you're right. Maybe it is his best performance. I, I you're right. Like you know that character, um, uh, Leo Marvin doesn't have much of a um, redemption at all. Like, but he gets his just desserts though, at least in that movie. True. Right. Um, so. All right. Do you notice fine young cannibals in this? 
I did several yeah. times. Uh huh. Yeah. Playing the house band. Uh huh. <clears throat> Good old rolling gift. I think that they had a single off of this with um. I think so. Falling in love with you, maybe or something. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah. Did I see Fine Young Cannibals? Of course, I saw the Fine Young Cannibals. Get out of here. You ready to move on to number one? If you are, sure. Yeah, I didn't know if you had anything else. Um, no, nothing. Nope. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right, so number one on your list is James Brooks, 1987, also 1987, film, broadcast news, stars William Hurt, Albert Brooks, Holly Hunter, Robert Prosky, Lois Chili's, and Joan Cusack. It has a 98% from critics and a 79% from audiences. You want to tell us a little about this movie and why you put it number one on this list? Uh, so this is a movie I kind of think of as like, I hate the term hidden gem, but almost like a forgotten um like just a forgotten movie from the 1980s um basically follows the careers of three people in the um television journalist um profession um albert brooks who plays a super intelligent but kind of socially unsuccessful and sort of off-putting uh news reporter who does like on the scene news reporting um william hurt who plays the overly handsome but inexperienced and kind of dumb uh news anchor who sort of has lucked into success his whole life and then um holly hunter who's a ambitious and successful but super uncertain and self-deprecating um producer who's really talented at like producing news pieces, but kind of is a shambles like personally. Um, so Albert Brooks is in love with Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter's in love with William Hurt. William Hurt eventually is in love with Holly Hunter when she's kind of uncertain about it. Um, and it's sort of like a love triangle set against this backdrop of the high pressure world of the nightly news. Um, really great dialogue, fantastic performances. Um, I think Albert Brooks to me is one of the most underrated actors of the 1980s and 90s. Um, I think that he perfectly captures like that overly smart everyman who secretly like loathes himself, mm -hmm. um, because of his own like intelligence in this movie. Um, kind of like he's he's really like the archetypical or like prototypical like nice guy like that term for like a guy yeah who yeah is always on the woman's side until the woman doesn't do what he wants and then he mm -hmm. like immediately turns on her right um to this point like telling her to just get the fuck out and um after she reveals that she's in love with the william hurt character mm -hmm. um i think hurt is a really weird dude but i think that he's like <laughs> almost like perfectly captures being like not quite a real person in this movie, which I think is like the absolute like exact thing that he's yeah. meant to capture, you know, just being a uh -huh. guy who knows how to kind of like maculate at being a human, but doesn't really know how to like engage um, exactly with other people because he's, he knows he's so much more handsome and he knows that he's, so much better and he kind of is like 
he has feelings but he also knows how to use people like expertly to his own end and it's just it's it's a really brilliant performance and it is but he's also um, very earnest which is what makes the character interesting i think in some ways he's earnest like i really do think he wants to get better and learn you know right, well, he's he's completely honest and he tells yeah. people he's using them right from the very beginning i mean there's no no illusion as to what he's doing it's just that he's so nice about it that it's kind of hard to yeah you know like hold him accountable or like have any real animosity um so also some really great small performances in this um Joan Cusack's really good in it um Jack Nicholson is like the perfect asshole mm-hmm. in this movie and the the head anchor from New York who's kind of like there to see them all off um one of the plot lines is that the network made some bad choices on Wednesday night it's a really funny line Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't program Wednesday nights, so and now they got to cut twenty-four million out of the budget. <laughs> right. Um, so all these people are losing their jobs. Um, and it's just, it's. I, I think that James L. Brooks is one of the most important voices in um, media and popular culture um, in the past forty years, um, with his associations, particularly like with The Simpsons. But you know, I mean, here's a guy who's made a pretty decent amount of like successful movies and i'm not a big fan of all of them but you know i definitely get in terms of endearment and um as good as it gets and you know he was involved with mary tyler moore and taxi and the simpsons and just like has always been in like a position where he's involved in something that's a successful and influential part of pop culture i think right um and again, I'm huge, huge Albert Brooks fan. Like I think Albert Brooks is a super underrated um, actor and director from you know, like the '80s and '90s. Defending Your Life, one of my favorite, um, one of the few comedies that I genuinely love. I think so. But I really enjoyed watching Broadcast News. I'm in love with Holly Hunter. Yeah, from this time period, she's yeah. the one thing I like about Raising Arizona. Like I would mm-hmm. know now however many years after we've talked about that fucking movie um yeah just you know i like the setting i like the scenes that take place in like the suburbs of prince george's county and down in washington and i think it's really well filmed i think it captures like that frantic like kinetic nature of journalism that you see like when you watch movies or you know i mean i've never been a journalist or whatever but it feels real like it, the stuff inside the studio and mm-hmm. trying to get the tape prepped in time and all that stuff it just feels um the whole thing feels like very very insider and you really get the impression that you're watching a movie that's about something that actually exists and i don't know, just really really enjoyed love this movie yeah i um I'm pretty sure Brooks worked in news early in his career. Um, so he probably, I mean, I, I think that's where he takes it like to Mary Tyler Moore and Lou Grant and all those kind of things is um, I do think he had some experience with all that um, when he wrote for them. And um, so I have a feeling like that there's this probably like was a movie that like had gestated for like a long time for him. It like some inklings of it and probably, you know, took him 20 years to, like, finally, like, formulate and get together and, um, you know, complete. That's my guess, anyway. Um, I I really wonder, it's like, 
because you don't i'm trying to think about like stuff that happens in news rooms like this um it's like god don't you think like sorkin who was really early in his writing career almost had to be like inspired by this with something like the newsroom oh yeah like because it just feels like an updated version to some degree of 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 this environment, the story, you know, like with his own political like leanings and you know um, stuff like kind of thrown in. Uh, I think William Hurts, and I'm not as big of a Brooks fan as you. I like Albert Brooks a lot, but um, I, I know you've always loved that guy a lot. Um, but I love all three principles in this. I think you're right about Nicholson. Um, and I don't really see it, like I don't really see him as like. He's an asshole only because of the power that he has, not necessarily because I think he himself is an asshole, because he really doesn't have to come down, like, you know, to see these people off. Like, he is, like, to some degree, I thought that was, like, a thing that was kind of showing, like, while he's a dick as a newscaster, because he's, like, like, the idea is he's a national, you know, face, he's Dan Rather, he's, you know, like, um, somebody like that. He's he's definitely a dick. I mean, there's the part where he calls... um jane to tell her what a good job she did on producing the story of the vietnam vet coming home and um it's it's you know it's um elliot's story that like is is reporting everything was his idea but because of some um perceived slight from years before where <laughs> elliot mocked like made some offhanded comment right. line like he refuses to speak to him i mean that shit it's, mm-hmm. it's so petty yeah yeah like that's it's it's little things like that so apparently and i i had not read the wikipedia article on this until i'm just glancing through it now but um the jane character was based on susan zarinsky who's like a pretty influential person Hmm. in the news media yeah um who's actually now the president of cbs um i guess cbs the company yeah president of cbs news Hmm. um but she's who that character was inspired by, and she was a associate producer and technical advisor for the film. So I guess that's where a lot of that realism comes from. Gotcha. And also, the Jane character was originally supposed to be played by Deborah Winger. Mm. Um. Mm. No. You're not a Deborah Winger fan. I am not. Um. I. I'm not. No. You know that I super love Deborah Winger, right? As an actress? Oh, I mean, I don't know. Okay. Just in general. Right. I, no, I'm not. She's, she's somebody, she's like Sean Young to me. Um, She's probably better than Sean Young, but she's like Sean Young to me. Like it's, these, these are women that were not like, terrible actresses or anything like that but i mean like but were um put in some lofty roles at times that i didn't think that they fit very well um at all and look like sean young like got mistreated in hollywood very very badly but um i don't know like sure she was good in officer and gentleman in terms of endearment um i do not like urban cowboy but it's like you look at the track record after that and it's like it's it's yeah it's not good um not good in the movies not good in their performances like necessarily like legal eagles like um which i've watched legal eagles like 
20 times in my life, I think, because it was always on HBO when I was a kid. But um, find a way to get legal eagles on the list. So Holly Hunter's the perfect choice for this, is all I'm saying. Yeah, um, it, it's it's definitely true. Like I think that um, Holly I, Holly Hunter's always at her best when she's playing Type A. Like whether it's like for comedic purposes, whether it's for dramatic or dramedy purposes here, like you know, she's always at her best when she's playing Type A. I think. Um, and she's she's fantastic here. Um, I like this movie. Watching it. I it feels like one of the crown jewels of the boomer generation to me. Hmm. Like self-important people <laughs> um privileged self-important people who have these micro dramas in their lives and but it's all okay because everything works out years later uh when they come back together because these are just moments in time and we should all just like you know keep living our lives and um it's a very boomer concept like that i think we have moved past in some ways like as 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 a as a moral as a lesson because other than that i don't know what to take from this movie on a grand scale other than i think it's an interesting drama about these people if i'm trying to take anything beyond that it's the very ending right like if you're trying to look for anything more than just the movie itself if you're trying to look for like meaning behind it it's that end scene where they all come back together and people can move on and grow and still be friends despite drama in the past and you know misconnections and all these other kind of things um and it's like yeah i get that like um maybe that was profound. i mean not every movie has some kind of like profound i don't know like after effect on you sometimes a movie can just be a good movie right Sure, and it can be a good movie. They and, and they don't be, get, and it can be a good movie. Like all of them, good, overplay good. their hands. Good movie. Uh, you know, the Smithsonian defines this as a culturally culturally relevant film. So the Smithsonian says, do you, do you, do you, uh, "Look, if I um if I sat there and said that for every single movie we've ever talked about, um, it would be a lot, and there'd be a lot that aren't very good. Um, but I'm not even saying that here. I'm saying this is a really good movie." There's just something about it to me that like just doesn't feel and you know how I am. Like I, I just don't feel any a lot of universalness coming off this movie. It's a really tight, great movie about these characters. But it's like I when I at the end I'm just like, that's the message? Like, and maybe it's because the message has been done so many times in my life after that that it's like I'm numb to it at this point. That's very possible. Um the message is don't be so fucking full of yourself. Like well, every right. single one of these characters, everything's temporary. Everything's transient, you know, like, right. Like, yeah. Everyone, but, um, William Hurton, he's the one that ends up with the most success in the long run. Right. Right. Um, 
but no, I really enjoyed watching this movie again on a Sunday when I was making, I think, lasagna. It was like I watched like half of it while I was making lasagna. I'm watching pictures of, or looking at pictures of Deborah Winger. <laughs> at least something good came out of it. <laughs> um, do you want me to leave you alone with your pictures of Deborah Winger? No, no, no. I'm just, it's just, it's interesting to watch her transition from. Like a sixteen-year-old kid in the seventies through like the eighties, like her, her growth and like to today, just interesting. Cajillionaire, what is that? Why do I know that movie? Came out last year. Okay, right. I kind of want to see it, but I haven't felt like paying money for it yet. And I don't think it's free anywhere. So, gotcha. Okay. Um, okay. You wanted to talk a little bit about, um, something we don't normally talk about a lot, uh, which is some television, uh, that's important to the state of Maryland. Um, so I'll go ahead and let you start since you were the one that wanted to talk about it. Yeah. I kind of wanted to just discuss a little bit, um, two of the pieces of art, I guess, if you want to call it that, that I would say are more important than any of these movies and to the to Maryland and just to like this area in general. And that's um, the wire and homicide um, and the corner, I guess, too, um, to rope all three in um, film primarily in the Baltimore area. Um, they don't really necessarily paint like the nicest picture of Baltimore, Maryland, but I think they paint a realistic picture of, I guess like the, the problems that are faced in this area, especially with drugs and crime. Um, some amazing performances, uh, some of the best writing um, ever, I think, for television. Um, in particular, The Wire, which is really a near-perfect 60-episode story from start to finish um, of the interweaving lives and troubles and successes and failures of a group of, you know, Baltimore City detectives and police officers and drug lords and homeless drug addicts and just an unflinching look at all these people that shows them at their best and their worst and just really like i don't know that we'd ever have the chance to talk about the wire and how great it is um and you know consequently homicide in the corner i guess but um the wire in particular just how amazing it is is a piece of both entertainment and I think cultural relevance. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of wanted to just use this time because we are talking about stuff that was filmed in Maryland. And we will never talk about it ever again. So, um. and also because I've been watching it again. So I've been letting myself like do it slowly. So I'm only watching like maybe one or two episodes a week, um, just kind of like slowly going through it and really enjoying the episodes in their as individual, like, relics of this time in this like fantastic um series and just really like enjoying it and building the anticipation of the next time i watch it but man it's it's so fucking good like some of the best performances i've ever seen on television mixed with some of the best writing um some really heartbreaking stuff and some really like emotionally jarring um scenes and concepts and character arcs but ultimately like everything is so fulfilling in it like even when you see the principles fall short of their goal which ultimately i guess that's the whole point is like how do you ever beat 
<clears throat> drugs in a place like Baltimore, which is you can't like no matter how hard you try, no matter how many victories you have, or how many gangsters, quote unquote, you take down, like you're still never gonna beat the drug epidemic in in a city like Baltimore. Um and really like really well filmed. I mean, always full of great guest directors and episodes written by guest writers and well, Ag- Agnieszka Holland um, directs a number of episodes of the wire. Yeah. She does. Um, so yeah, just, I, I think that most people that have seen the wire would agree that it's one of, if not the best pieces of television ever created. Um, to me, it's the jewel of HBO's early years. Uh, adult nighttime television yeah. slate um, edging out the Sopranos, I would say, because as much as I dislike some of the latter Sopranos, I still can appreciate how great it is. I would, I would say edging out Deadwood, which edges out the Sopranos. Um, yeah, you're right. I um, the wire, the wire is more relevant to, well, to me and to modern times. I think Deadwood. That would be an interesting paper to write. But it's like, I think there's a through line from Deadwood to The Wire in so many ways. Um, when you really look at it, thematic stuff of like how we've progressed as a civilization and a society in this country, um, that you could have some really interesting conversations about. But um, not to take anything away from The Sopranos, like you said, the later seasons or, you know, I think once Nancy Marchand dies, it, it, it's hard to come back from that. Um, in a lot of ways, just because she was so pivotal to the show, and but uh, but yeah, The Wire is something that you and I. It's like I think we both said it's it's our favorite show of all time, right? I mean, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and Homicide particularly was extremely important to me, at least. Um in the formation of like who I am, I guess. And like why we would maybe even be doing this podcast. Like, is that I'm, I don't know if you remember these commercials, there was commercials the before the third season. No, the fourth season of homicide. So I would have been 13 at this time, I believe. Um, And I was, uh, they would show them all the time on NBC during the summer um advertising the new season and they would use clips from the third season and i think they were playing hot time summer in the city because they were showing reruns during the summer of homicide and um you know that line with brower where they film him coming through the um uh pendleton um played by andre brower um where they film coming through the squad room where he's like he who loses control loses um and um, what's the joke after that? One of them, somebody says that somebody tell them about like my bladder problem or something like that, like one of the other detectives. Um, but they use that line and Fletzo and I like would see it all the time and um, kind of like mark out to the commercials. It's like, oh, you should watch that. And so I started watching in the fourth season when I was like 13, 14 or something like that. And it blew my mind um of how great just the writing was and how quick it was and how like so much of it just took place in one location a lot of times in terms of like you know all the stuff with the interrogation that they focused on and i became fascinated at that point 
you know, long before this long uh, years before CSI or anything like that, with the idea of like homicide investigation, and crime scenes, and like all those kind of things, um, because of this show and um, read David Simon's book that it was based on at a young age and followed his career and watched, you know, read the corner and then watched the corner and um, was super excited when we found out that like the wire was like being done by him and um, like it really influenced around the time that I had discovered Tarantino, um, which is, like, a few months after I start watching Homicide, and then, like, start, like, looking and, like, reading crime novels. So Homicide's another really big part to, like, the formation of, like, what made me start reading and all those kind of things. Um, I probably don't give it enough credit that it deserves until, you know, now, like, thinking, as you asked me about it yesterday, like, thinking more about it, um, of how important Homicide was, um, you know, to my life in some ways of just like the sheer quality of the writing and the different unique, diverse characters. Um, you know, uh, Yafa Kato, like playing Giardello in that show and seeing Andre Brower play Frank Pembleton um, and uh, what Clark Johnson playing Lewis and like, you know, the sardonic like wit of like Belzer playing like, you know, like Munch. Um, like all of these different like unique characters um all interacting with one another um and some of the greatest moments of drama like on a kind of like episodic level at times in homicide surpassing even the wire to me at times like some of those dramatic elements that happen inside of epi like specific episodes um brower uh pemelton uh saluting Crossetti's like with the one man salute um, thing, like like brilliant stuff um, that they do sometimes in that series. It's a shame to me that Homicide is not available to stream anywhere, apparently due to music rights. It's really a difficult, um, yeah, it'd be nice to be able to watch it. Yeah, apparently it's uh, the complete series, because I, I just looked it up. It's uh, it's used for, uh, or no, new for $73, it looks like. Um, which I'm really tempted to buy it now if I... Um, just do it. Yeah. But... Um, it's on eBay, $68 with free shipping. Hmm. Um, Only 35 discs. Right. <laughs> right. So that's... Yeah, so that's, Looks they have the um that's 35 times I gotta get up and um take something out, put it something in, take something out of the they have the um file folder. Do you remember that? The special thing that came out? I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Eighty-five dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wait, that's just that's a an auction. Mm. Yeah, that shit's gonna go up in price. Probably chuck some. <clears throat> Um, you, need, you need to you need to hit up that sixty eight dollar one. Yeah, I mean, I think I can just buy it here for seven seventy three and just get it by Saturday. Um, if I wanted to on Amazon. Um, <clears throat> but I know you're all in the eBay, but yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about homicide, just because you talk more about the wire. Um, and like I'm not telling people to go spend seventy three dollars. Uh, hopefully it will be up on streaming someday on Peacock somehow. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Homicide is more episodic than The Wire, but um, still like really breaks ground. Like maybe one of the more groundbreaking shows in terms of 
having to have seen previous episodes to understand the references that are going on in later episodes um so while it is still episodic in nature besides two-parters you know three-parters here and there um still like extremely complex and like has continuity to it um beyond most shows at the time um but uh but yeah i mean two extremely those are the two things that are most recognized i would say from ireland is is homicide and the um the wire so uh perfectly i think appropriate to talk about it and honestly like if we okay so long after the quick cage is done we're taking a break i think on the on the secondary podcast probably for a while i know that if we both get the dvds of homicide how would you feel about doing a seven episode run special like thing where we review or talk about a season of the of homicide um i'm mean, fine with that trying to make me get up 35 times i see <laughs> i'm surprised at this point you don't have like you know like some sort of like 50 dicks changer where you could just like load the bitch up and just, just cycle it <clears throat> even physical mediums do you know how much of a pain in the ass it is every time i have to watch a goddamn quick cage movie on dvd <laughs> like did you, i listen did you, I, did you do that today no 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 oh, okay. um that'll happen tomorrow but I had to watch broadcast news and um, behind the mask on DVD, and let oh, me tell you, because you already had it on DVD. Yeah, oh. I have, I have um, fucking broadcast news on Blu-ray, motherfucker. <laughs> Love that movie. <laughs> oh, that's quite a claim. Like that's, that's, that's quite a flex. Is what it was. <laughs> that shit on Blu-ray. Good flex, but it's it's the one I got. Like, I'm so lazy about changing discs and stuff that I will sometimes just pay $3.99 rather than have to get up and find a DVD and put it in. Okay, I have one question for you about The Wire. What's the best season of The Wire in your mind? Oh, fuck. Hmm. So... I don't know, man. That's a really impossible question. Um, like they all have their own individual strengths. I mean, sure. Season one is just so brilliant for the introduction of all those characters and terminology and setting. You know, like where by the fifth episode, like you know, like touts, runners, the low uh-huh. rises. You know. Uh-huh. Like you understand like all of those terms and you get to know these people and like you start to kind of understand the the actual like legality behind like wiretapping and stuff. Right. Um I mean I think two is the greatest departure from the rest of the series, just in terms of that focus on um the waterfront, you know, and mm-hmm. the like bringing the Greek to the forefront and kind of pushing the Baltimore drug trade a little bit out to the side, but then I guess that makes sense because, you know, that's Avon getting arrested right at the end of season one, like right leads into that kind of vacuum. And I'll tell you that's, and uh, I'll stop you there and then let you continue because I have a feeling yours is different, but I mean, um, then my, but 
that's why I think season two is my favorite is because if you stopped at season one, it would be a black issue, right? Like it's the black element in the inner city who's behind the drug trade and it would just stop there. The idea that they move into season two and expose you to those international elements on a much higher level than anybody can imagine in terms of distributing it and bringing it into the country and the white middle class, lower middle class of the docks and showing how it destroys those communities as well. It's the most maligned season if you look online a lot of times besides the fifth season for different reasons. But um, a lot of people, it's their least favorite season because they don't find the dock worker stuff like interesting whatsoever. I find it fascinating um, myself. And I think it's my favorite season because they take the problem. It's that move from taking it from just the inner city and the towers and all that kind of stuff and moving and show you is that first broadening of how the problem affects everyone. Right. And for that reason, it's my favorite because when I saw it, it was like, Holy shit. Like they're going, it's that realization where it's like, Oh my God, they're going to like create a tapestry of like how it like affects and reaches out everywhere. Um, and then at that point, the third season moves on to a different topic, right? Yeah, and I, I think maybe the third season is my favorite season. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, you have the introduction of Marlowe in the third season. Right. Um, you really introduce, like, the true, like, principal cast of that show that's going to last you until the end. Um, there's great stuff with Omar. There's great stuff with Stringer. Mm-hmm. You see, like, the broadening of Stringer becoming, like, this, like, really trying to use the drug trade to make himself a legitimate businessman mm-hmm. um, and his struggles against, you know, the, the short sightedness of Avon who just wants to be a banger who, right. you know, always believes that war is the way to go. Um, Introduction of bunny in that season. Yeah. Bunny. You got hamster, the, the, hamster the hamster yep. up there. Um, that brilliant, it's just, it's, brilliant scene and brilliant from a, the way, that actor delivers like tells the story from a filmmaking standpoint that uh, is is the cold open to the episode of him telling the story of the old smoke hound who finds the compromise between police with the brown bag. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Yeah. Like it's his way of introducing Hamsterdam to the, um, yeah. Cause he's talking about Bob Brown, who, if you have ever read like the homicide book, like, you know, mm-hmm. about Bob Brown anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that that's one of the greatest things about the David Simon, Tom Fontana, I guess. Yeah. Shared universe of like Baltimore crime is that it's all based on real things. So there's this, right. Like, like use the word tapestry. I think that's the perfect way to describe it. There's just this shared knowledge of history that actually happened. Plus, the history of these characters that are invented for these series and they all interweave and yeah but yeah i think i I think season three is probably my favorite that's what i figured yeah that's what i thought always thought three is my favorite and i think i mean nothing's my least favorite but five is my least favorite i think think the five is the one that struggles the most with 
because it, it's so unrealistic sometimes with the plot points in five, like especially with the homeless murders, like being used to continue, um, the special crimes unit. Like that's right, a really like large stretch and. But yeah, three, three, and two. I think are both fantastic. Um, I love one. I, I mean, I whatever. Like the yeah. whole thing is just amazing, yeah. like from start to finish. So, yeah. If you've I never mean, seen The Wire, and I can't yeah. imagine anyone has not seen The Wire, like you need to, you owe it to yourself to subscribe to HBO for a couple months and just watch it. Yeah, I agree. Watch Dead Wire, Deadwood while you're at it. <laughs> yeah, definitely Deadwood too. Deadwood's amazing, but not filmed in Maryland, so right, not filmed in Maryland. Right. Um. Okay. Any final thoughts? No, no, it was an enjoyable episode to watch all the movies for. And yeah. like I said, it's been really um, a great time watching The Wire again. So, yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yep. Have a good night.